AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for February 9th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. How's it going, Brian? Doing well, thanks. And how about you? Pretty well, actually. Uh, had an interesting weekend. There was um, an interesting release of old malware um, to the Internet Archive. So Jason Scott, who's a well-known Internet Archivist, um, paired up with Miko Hippinen of F-Secure to put a, a collection of old malware, I, I think a lot of this was Miko's personal collection of things he'd found, from the DOS and th Windows 3.1 right. era onto archive.org. And the cool thing is they've sort of defanged the malware mm -hmm. and they've got it in emulation software called DOSBox. So you can actually open up your browser and run it and see what somebody would have seen when they got infected back in the day. Oh, very cool. You know, it, I, I think there may be some actual benefit to this, in my opinion. That is, the, uh, especially for folks that have been doing security analysis for a long time, you start to recognize that there really is very little revolution in security, or, or actually in the attacks themselves. That a lot of it's very evolutionary, and that having a, some history examples can help folks, particularly if they're new to security and trying to learn things, how things have been evolving. And I think it'll make them better security analysts going forward to be able to see, you know, this is where we've been and understand where we're going. You know, the what's the old adage of, uh, you know, those that don't un understand history or yeah, we're doomed to repeat, repeat it. Repeat it. Yeah. Stan Merlov, yeah. welcome. Thank you, Brian. It's good to see you here again. Yes. And online, we have John Markley. Welcome, John. Good morning or afternoon. And I'm Brian Rexrod, and uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, jump into, I guess, the first story with you, Matt. And um, I guess we all have our experience with bugs. Can you tell us a little bit about this one? Sure. So this one's uh, kind of an interesting one, in my opinion. Um, so Checkpoint had a blog post recently talking about a bug that one of their researchers found on eBay. Mm -hmm. And within eBay's website, obviously, people can sell their own things. They can set up little stores for themselves. Turns out that eBay allows a certain amount of active content. Mm -hmm. um, and they do some filtering in order to prevent malicious content from being added to that. Unfortunately, it turns out that their filter wasn't doing such a good job. And there's actually a very interesting JavaScript packing tool, the name of which I really can't say on the air, but you know, it's written by a guy named Martin Klepp. Go look it up and so you'll see it. So probably had a little bit of malicious intent in that. Well, I don't know. I've seen it used. I've seen it used legitimately. I've also seen it used in exploit kits. So it's it's a packer. People mm -hmm. will use it for different reasons. But in this case, it turns out that um, you can use this packer to take any pretty much any JavaScript and compact it down to well, let's not say compact. You can take the set of characters and limit it to six characters, mm -hmm. which is it's like I'm trying to find a metaphor for it. It's, it's like trying to build a house using only sticks of a certain length. Sounds like Mastercraft or it, Minecraft. Minecraft. Maybe, yeah. It's a little like programming malware in Minecraft. Uh, but turns out that bypassed the filter, and right. there were some demo videos they showed. Uh, originally, it sounded like eBay said they weren't going to fix it, um, but then there was an update on Ars Technica where they said mm -hmm. they've worked with them, they've come up with a couple of, a couple of filters to add, and they, they stressed that the number of people actually using active content within eBay is somewhat small. 
and therefore this shouldn't be a problem. I tend to disagree with that. I think now that this is in the news, there mm -hmm. will be more people trying to use this now that it's public. Um, but it sounds like they've patched it, so that's, that's good. Mm. You know, this reminds me of a bugging thing. So we were talking a little bit about history. This goes, I think, significantly back. I think it was actually, I'm not exactly sure how much detail I could go into here, but it was a case where they had basically bugged some typewriters. I think they only did it on maybe six keys or so. And so, but just by the stroking of the keys and, and the, the signals that they would generate, it was possible to actually reassemble oh, the text associated with the that. timing between each key type. And you can say, well, this guy types at this rate, and therefore you know that he is, the A is here, and there's maybe two letters, and then another C. You may have had C. enough to do with the frequency that you, you know, with just those letters, you were able to be able to assemble the full thing. It wouldn't work in a coding sense, but if you're reading, you've ever seen one of those old tests where you know the words can get all jumbled around and you can still read it just yep. fine it was one of those kinds of scenarios i believe that despite the blanks you could still tell what was what and you only had to code a few things but anyway That's i digress cool. <laughs> so perhaps a, a similar kind of philosophy here so again recognizing in current activities perhaps things that were based on maybe not based on but we perhaps would know about from some time ago so, all right, well, that's, a, that's an interesting story, being able to pack things into a set of six characters and uh, get, past the, get past the checks. So, uh, Stan, let's go to you. And um, I guess uh, Google's always looking for ways to try to make the world a little bit that's more right. secure, so. Yeah, this one's actually a pet peeve of mine, but I'm glad to see that Google's doing something about it. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience, you go on a website, you're looking to download something, you know, you're downloading some kind of open source package or something similar, and uh, you get to the website, and the download link is somewhere in an obscure location, but it's surrounded by advertisements that mm -hmm. say download, or you know, your computer needs update or something like that. And that's probably not where you wanna click, and uh, there's even, a, you know, for some uh, advertisers, there is an option to go and report things like that. Uh, but Google has decided to do something about it. So if you're familiar with unsafe browsing and if you go to a malicious website, Google will give you like a little red page that says, hey, you're about to go somewhere unsafe. You know, you have the option to continue or you can back off. Well, they're going to start doing something similar for websites that have a consistent behavior where they're putting these kinds mm -hmm. of ads onto the website. So hopefully that changes some of that behavior because I know it's uh, certainly very deceptive quite often. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. really looking to click on the download link in the advertisement. I'm looking for the download link for, where I, for what I came for. So I'm glad that they're doing something about it. I've actually myself many times have reported these kinds of advertisements. So I'd like to think that this is something I contributed to. You know, all those advertisements <laughs> I, I marked as inappropriate <laughs> have finally come to this policy decision. Right. So is this generally, I mean, is this basically a crowdsourced thing that, that based on reports they're using that as a means to do it? Uh, the article uh, didn't specify how didn't they're specify. doing this, uh, but I'd like to think that they do take those kinds of metrics back because you mm -hmm. can, for certain ads they have, you, there's about three options that you have mm -hmm. that lets you kind of choose what kind of advertisements you'd like to see. Mm -hmm. And I know I certainly think about all the people, like whenever I submit one for inappropriate for something like that, I mm -hmm. think about like, you know, my mom or my dad and they're looking for, right. for the link to something and 
here they're being tricked to do something else. Right. Um, so I, I agree. But just taking the counterpoint for the moment, just for the sake of argument, this is I think this is a very difficult thing to do. And that's one of the reasons I asked about the crowdsourcing. That is, how do you define deceptive? I mean, it, it, deceptive could be very different for different people even. And so I think having some sort of sort of a rating system behind it yeah. to be able to support it. Sure. Otherwise, it, it's kind of like, how do you define a situation where the company, you know, Google in this particular case, how do you distinguish making a judgment against organizations versus actually trying to protect the users. It's a, it's yeah, a very tricky thing. I can see where you're going with that because, you know, as Google has business interests and, you know, deciding that some ads are okay and some are not based on mm -hmm. their own business interests is not the same as acting in the best interest of the internet. So if they decided, you know, these this advertisers' ads are misleading and therefore I will filter them out, good for us, we're doing the right thing. Well, maybe and maybe not. Yeah. I've also yeah. seen ads that have, you know, they have the big green download here button and at the very bottom in tiny text it says clicking this will bring us bring you to our advertiser's site, which I'm guessing is their way of trying to get out of if someone asks, hey, this isn't a this isn't a download button, I'm like, no, 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 we, we clearly say that at the bottom. So that's their way of weaseling <laughs> clearly, out of it. Yeah. Clearly in the little one pixel. <laughs> If you hover your mouse over this pixel here, it tells you everything. Right. So anyway, that, you know, I think that's more and more, I think the challenge of security really comes down to the challenge of managing deception. And, and I, I know of no better solution than the crowdsourcing that is let the public help rate that as a, a means to do it. So it'll be interesting to see how they implement it and how transparent it is in terms of the judgment, you know, the, how the judgments are being made. Of course, then again, you have to deal with if there is transparency in the judgments, then you come up against those that are manipulating the judgment. So, <laughs> well, I think the other the other twist the other twist of this, Brian, too, is there's a lot of these downloads that are packages, right? Mm -hmm. So they have more than one piece of software in the download. Mm -hmm. Do they consider that deceptive, or is that just part of the bundling that you went to that site to download? Yes, that's true. And uh, more and more, the, the sort of promotional type bundling is uh, taking place. And again, I, I don't think it's necessarily malicious. But it can be deceptive. Can end up with people that you know end up with things that they didn't really intend. It's a it's a tricky matter to deal with. So, so John, let's go to you. And um, you know, speaking of deceptive, <laughs> this is a this is an interesting one. You know, there have been a lot of stories about uh, about this kind of thing. But I'm interested in hearing about this particular example. I'm glad you weren't talking about me personally being deceptive, Brian. You know, I was a little, a little uncomfortable there for a second. But uh, you know, there was a, a story that hit the news. A company out of Moscow, actually called Doctor Webb, published a, an article saying that they had found some malware that was taking a fairly unique twist on how it was being delivered to Android phones, especially since it was, you know, it said that they were these apps were actually on the Google Play Store. So what the users were doing were getting these apps putting them on their devices, according to Dr. Webb, that is, mm -hmm. and then getting this malware installed on the device. And so the interesting thing is what it would do is it would get sent a picture to the phone. And, and so, you know, if you think about it from a monitoring perspective, we don't look at, and you know, if you're doing a, you know, a network traffic analysis, you're not looking at a picture coming in. That usually doesn't trigger anything. You know, we're looking at going to this, you know, being redirected to a different URL, um, going to a you know a, a particular site or, or, mm -hmm. or some kind of command and control, we don't look at this. This actually pulled a picture to the device, and then what it did is it, it actually had the 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 malicious app had some content. What it could it could take that 
picture apart and actually translate that into an APK or and, and then install that as like a separate app on the wow. device. Really cool, you know, trick by <laughs> embedding that in the picture, you know, to avoid detection right. and then and then disassembling it and, and making it and reassembling it as an APK. This is the only group that I've seen that has talked about this yet. So this is maybe just the start of a trend of some new, very, you know, tricky and intense uh, uh, malware being installed. Mm -hmm. So this is a case where it's actually embedded in the picture as opposed to, you know, there have been lots and lots of attacks on, you know, like Windows devices where, you know, they rename a file to be a JPEG or something like that. It's not really an image at all, but because of it, it ends up being recognized as an executable thing in a sense, and then ends up being executed as a, perhaps as a completely different thing. This is different than that, is that correct? Correct, that's absolutely correct. This is actually just, it's actually embedded in the picture. So it's not, it's, 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 they have to take that picture apart. So it's kind of hidden within it. And we're, and we're gonna talk a little bit about some of that, you know, but it, it's, it's really, for, for me, that was a really unique attack vector. Right, now is this a vulnerability in the, in uh, a particular set of code or is it, is it just really just a, uh, uh, perhaps an oversight and, how would you I, I think we're going to see. Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing some 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 groups. You know, like like Google, some of these app store companies start looking at how to, uh, you know, how to prevent somebody doing something like this, like hiding it. It's kind of like thinking, you know, every other bit. You know, if you think about the old, uh, you know, like uh, Alice in Wonderland. You know, Lewis Carroll, you know, coded Alice Liddell in the in the in the uh, poem at the start of the book. You know, if you mm -hmm. look at the first letter of every le you know character or the third letter, you know. You know, you can make different things. It's kind of that same, uh, you know, maybe we'll start seeing that every third bit, which maybe has no other value, is actually going to be used to uh, uh, to be translated into some other something else. Kind of neat. So, But I, I think some of the recommendations, you know, people have to understand before we detect this is you still, of course, you'll never get it from anything but approved app stores. A lot of this stuff comes from what they call knockoffs. So, like, if somebody comes up with some brand new, you know, state-of-the-art game or somebody everybody's playing, you know, you go look for a free version of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you avoid those knockoffs, rooting the device, and then just generally be aware what's on the device. You know, kind of keep an eye out for, you know, unusual behavior or um, if it asks for additional permissions that you say, well, why did I just download this game? Why is it needing access to my phone? You know, those are things just, you know, it's the stuff we talk about, I think, you know, every week. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, it's kind of neat. But again, this, this vector, um, you know this uh, what they call steganography is is a pretty neat little uh, uh, you know attack vector we just really haven't seen much of uh, in the last 50 years it's been around forever yeah, it's been around for a long time but usually associated with spies and you know that little micro dot or something like that this is a you know getting it into sort of the mainstream is uh, fascinating and scary <laughs> there's actually a couple of websites out there that'll let you upload the picture and they'll look for stego like this, where the la uh, least significant bit or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, inconsistencies for, for in the way it's coded. Because yeah, exactly. So, I, mean, I have a question for John. Actually, are they using steganography? Is that confirmed? Or are they simply inserting the APK content midway through the JPEG? Because I mean, you'll still have a somewhat of a, a standard JPEG file. It'll it'll render, I guess, but. Yeah, no, it, it is it is is actually steganography. They're actually taking bits bits here and there based on a certain pattern to take it from this part and this part and this part. So that it's not just like embedded and cased within like a section of code. It's 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 chopped up and divided up into the into the old picture. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. 
So, so you know, steganography, I think we all understand, you know, what steganography is. I mean, this is a, a kind of a good built picture of a tree. Pulled that off of Wikipedia. Um, I think Sid uh, uploaded originally. And so, you know, you look at that, you don't see anything. But then you look, you know, what's embedded in it, you'll actually see the, the cat that's embedded within that picture. And you don't see that cat. You see it? No. <laughs> but it, it's there. Well, look closely. It's a, it's actually it's is about halfway up the tree on the right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Uh, now the rug, on the other hand, that that was not in the tree. <laughs> so, yeah, very good, John. So this is a, again, this is an interesting thing. As you pointed out, steganography has been around for a long time, but it's been generally associated with you know James Bond like spy activities. And to see it coming out into the, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, common domain of malware is uh, a, an interesting thing. You know, I, I think that's been one of our fundamental challenges. I, I tend to think back to the von Neumann architecture. Stan's nodding his head, but Matt, you apparently have a problem with history. Is that apparently, that? <laughs> <laughs> in the in the von Neumann architecture, there's a clear distinction between the data and the code. And so, but we've blurred that. And as we've blurred that, it's become more of a security issue because data, a picture, can be at least, or have attributes of code embedded in it. And we've got all kinds of flavors in between where things are predominantly data, but they're really code, or they're predominantly code, but they're really data kind of things. These are the kinds of things that we've introduced by just, you know, genericizing the uh, computer architecture and just making, here's memory and there's stuff in there. It could be data or code. So. Anyway, it's been one of my pet peeves for quite some time, but I don't think we're going back. That shift of ship has left the harbor. Given the scenario that we have, the situation we have, you know, I, I happened to run across an article, and it is actually titled "How to Secure Amazon Web Services." Um, I'm not necessarily promoting Amazon Web Services here. In fact, I like to, you know, having looked at the article, I think there are a lot of principles that are in this article that I think are very good for folks to take a look at if they're using cloud services or considering using cloud services. And it kind of starts out right at the beginning, you know, saying Amazon protects the infrastructure. They provide the protection of the cloud infrastructure itself. But securing your cloud applications and the environment that you're working in really is up to you. And uh, so it's a, this is really providing some tips along those lines. So the first one, uh, <laughs> first one they point out is that, I mean, this is a, a quote from the article here, don't let the developers run the show. I, I don't think that's exactly, I mean, it's a little insinuative, but really what it comes down to is, um, you know, creating cloud images ahead of time that the developer organization or that the application developer, developers would use with the basic security practices and configurations in place so that you don't have to be worried about the developers doing those things. So I think that perhaps a better way of describing this is don't depend on the development team that's under pressure to create features and get applications out there to actually be, I mean, they may be interested in security and doing it right, but it's not necessarily their priority. So you have to do some things ahead of time or behind the scenes to help them out in doing that. So, and this is very similar to the practices that we've been putting into place in terms of our use of cloud activities as well. So very consistent. And then the second thing they sort of point out is make sure you provide a separation between the test environment that is set up a cloud infrastructure for test and a cloud infrastructure for applications. Try to keep those things separate because you don't want a flaw in the development 
to be able to, uh, to uh, extend into your uh, production applications. Second one, uh, very straightforward, take away the user accounts. That is, you know, if you, particularly when you're starting to mechanize and auto automate things, create accounts that are specifically for APIs and give them only the privileges that they need. So uh, we call that the concept of least privilege or separation of duties in a sense uh, that, uh, that we implement as a part of our policies, uh, good practices in general. And with the opportunities that APIs provide you, uh, it gives you an opportunity to really constrain and actually understand what a particular user should be able to do makes the security analyst challenge much more simple because anything outside that bound should be a, a strong flag of a problem. The next one here is uh, basically use the tools that are made available to you. You know, a cloud service provider, a good cloud service provider, and by the way, uh, I think these are attributes that you want to look for in a cloud service provider. That is, you know, they may have certificate management functions, encryption tools, hardware security modules, you know, for storing keys, you know, and I think that's kind of an important thing that is, you know, when you're trying to protect private keys, having hardware that's designed for that really helps to prevent, you know, Heartbleed was a big problem because the OpenSSL library could potentially expose the keys. If your keys are protected in hardware, it helps to prevent you from, from that kind of a threat. So having a hardware module for doing that, you know, uh, FIPS 140 uh, basically specifies um, requirements for that type of thing. And then, um, you know, web application firewalls, you want to be able to put a firewall in front of your thing. Uh, we have a big program internally to uh, virtualize security functions around cloud applications. So uh, those are some other things that you might want to look for. Uh, treat security like software development. That is, uh, security needs to be tested just like the software needs to be tested. And if you find problems with it, treat it like it's a, you know, a system outage just like anything else. I know, I, I recall basically using this scenario like, uh, you know, a person has had a problem with their computer and they'd say, you know, what am I supposed to do? Well, pretend it caught fire. How would you treat that situation? And it's a similar kind of scenario here. Treat security issues as importantly as, as a, uh, you know, any other type of a system outage or something like that. Don't forget the non-security tools. You know, we've been talking a lot about mass destructive malware. It's one of our fundamental predictions. It's certainly ransomware has been an issue. So make sure you back up the data, either mirrored or keep it offline, those types of things. And then uh, last but not least, you remember the basics. You know, anything that's exposed to the internet, particularly when you're working in a cloud environment, the tendency will be that you're gonna have administrative interfaces that are perhaps exposed to the, to the internet. There are probably controls that you can put in place to say, you know, I'm only going to be coming from this address. So use that firewall to your advantage. But on top of that, use multi-factor authentication to make sure that somebody can't be successfully doing password guessing attacks. Have we ever talked about password guessing attacks on this program? I don't think we no, you know, Of you course know, we have. <laughs> I think we have. <laughs> I think just two weeks ago, Jim Clausing went through a big uh, dissertation on, on uh, and a very interesting one on uh, password guessing activity. So, you know, use unique accounts per user, no root access without first logging in as a normal user. And uh, it, it basically, as I said earlier, least privileges. So lots of good suggestions. I've been kind of rambling here, but uh, it was a very short article, very much worth the read. We'll provide the URL. And uh, I recommend that, uh, like I said, if you're going to cloud or doing things in cloud, make sure you have some good cloud-specific practices in place. Many of them are really basic, you know, 
just good practices overall, but I think um, deserve that, uh, that cloud perspective. Anything else? <laughs> did I miss something? I think you did good. <laughs> All right, so let's move on here. And uh, Matt, let's go back to you. And uh, Drydex botnet got dried up. Uh, hijacked, I guess, is hijacked. the right way. So this is an interesting one from Avira, uh, and they have a bit of a uh, skin in the game here. Mm -hmm. It turns out that someone, and not Avira, according to Avira, hijacked a portion of the Drydex botnet. Now, Drydex is, is known for sending out spam containing mm -hmm. doc files which have macros. Someone opens the doc, the macros run, it grabs a secondary payload and installs that. That payload... Uh, apparently, someone had found a way to get to those, those staging servers and replace the payload with Avira antivirus. Mm -hmm. Completely legitimate Avira antivirus installers, signed code, the whole, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. uh, so what happens is people would, you know, if they fell for the fish, they'd open up the doc pile and they'd get a free copy of Avira instead of malware, mm -hmm. which is interesting, a little bit funny. Um, it's not clear who did this yet. Right. Um, People were speculating it could be a white hat because people have seen this happen to CryptoLocker and Tesla, Tesla Crypt installations as well, where somehow Avira got bundled in with those. Um, some speculation is that this might be an attempt by someone, and this is one of the lesser probable theories, but one of the more interesting ones in my opinion, is that mm -hmm. someone might be using this in order to trick automated defenses that are looking for these packages and getting the MD5 hash or the SHA hash and throwing it into a, you know, antivirus and saying, this is the latest of the Drydex campaign, please block this whenever you see it, as in doing that to Avira. But uh, that's probably not happening. I don't think it's quite as, as effective, but it is kind of funny. The one thing about this is whoever is doing it, regardless of the fact that it is kind of a, a, an interesting joke to play on the people who are running this, this botnet, that they're still installing software that the, the people never asked for. Right. It's still illegal. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love this and I hate it. I mean, I love it in the sense that this really is an example of how some malicious activity could potentially be dampered. And there have been some controlled cases of this, but there also have been some massive screw-ups and things like this. So going back to history again, this is like the program of flashbacks. Welcher Worm was actually, in my opinion, the at least the first example that I know of of malware that was intended to be not mal, okay. <laughs> goodware. It immediately followed, it was like two weeks after the blaster worm. This would have been that 2003, something like that. So it's, it's going back a little bit in time. You were probably uh, in middle school at the time, is that right? That sounds about right. <laughs> so in any case, uh, you know, the blaster worm, it basically uh, uh, it, uh, exploited a vulnerability in uh, Microsoft Windows and uh, basically spread wildly across the internet. And uh, the Welcher Worm basically took advantage of that same exploit. That is, the, the Blaster Worm didn't fix the problem when it got in there. Well, the Welcher Worm came in behind it, did the same exploit, would exploit right on top of the Blaster Worm, download the patches to fix the problem. But the problem was that it didn't go away. It would go and try to find others to try to fix. And then the problem on top of that is the randomization they used to find new addresses, it started from the same address every time. And we basically go through sequentially. So it was a certain address block that it beat the living daylights out of. And there was actually a point of period of time where that worm was actually represented 40% of the connections on our network. 
just creating, you know, trying to scan around and look for things. So it was actually a, a significant deal. Now there was a period where it actually had a drop dead date that was programmed into it, and that was the only reason it ever went away. But it was uh, it was a really significant event. So that was a um, a case where it appeared to be good intentions gone awry, and that's the risk that you run with a case like this. Now, mm -hmm. installing a perfectly legitimate piece of antivirus probably is not going to cause significant issues, but what if that had been accidentally installed on a, we'll say, a medical device and mm -hmm. didn't recognize the circumstances or caused some type of a performance issue? It would be an uncomfortable situation. And in any case where there might be millions, there are going to be a handful of cases where there might be a significant impact. So that, that's the real challenge that comes with these kinds of cases. And before anybody says, you know, I don't think anyone would ever open up a, a malware-laden email on a medical device or mm -hmm. a point of sale, We've seen that happen. We've definitely mm -hmm. seen people, you know, downloading games to their point of sale systems and the like. So this, yeah. I think, it's pretty feasible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know, it, it, your point is is correct as well. That in order to conduct that, I don't know how it could have been done without some illegal act mm -hmm. taking place along the way. So obviously, this uh, actor is remaining anonymous. You know, there was another case. Um, it was the uh, Carnot worm, yeah. which wasn't actually a fixing a problem. But it, it compromised a lot of things to survey the internet for things that could be compromised. You know, it was kind of a, it was a surveying tool. But uh, in, the, in this act of doing that, didn't do it in a very ethical way. Well, you've also got Reincarna, which someone else released recently mm -hmm. that does the same kind of thing where it, it closes up Telnet. It's attempting and puts, to try to clean things up, right? Attempting to, but again, doesn't have authorization. It's always mm -hmm. somebody else's machine. And that's, that's one of the interesting things about botnet takedowns. If you ever read about case studies of those, it's, it's always like you have to spend so much time making sure that whatever you're deciding to do, you're doing it on thousands of other people's machines. You really can't predict what's going to happen. Yeah. And doing it without permission and screwing up is a lot worse than, well, well maybe it's not worse, but it certainly it, puts a lot more risk in your court. It's, an, uh, it's a very much an unknown. And so that's one of the, you know, when, when, when folks ask, you know, why don't you just take the botnet down or something like that, it, it really is a, uh, a complex issue to deal with. So I, I'm, I'm glad you brought this article because I think it's important for us to kind of revisit some of these things and at least understand what the risks of one thing versus another are and, you know, consider the fact that even though it's a good thing, the means may be not quite correct, but... And the impact is probably more than anyone can fathom, any yeah. one person. I guess what I was trying to say is the ends don't always justify the means. <laughs> Who said that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was uh, it goes way too too far back to even be interesting. So, <laughs> okay, Stan, on the uh, so the the dire malware. A lot of D um, malware today. Yeah. So tell us about it. <laughs> well, apparently there's been a decline. Some security researchers are decline. reporting there's a decline in the dire malware <laughs> um, since probably November of last year. Mm -hmm. And there was a Reuters article, uh, Reuters, sorry, a Reuters article that kind of said that in November there was in some building, some company called 25th Floor uh, in a high rise in Moscow, uh, a raid by the Russian police, the FSB. And around that, and they suspect, and some unconfirmed sources or closed sources are saying that this is true, that possibly somebody involved with that botnet or that malware 
was being investigated. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're, they're kind of linking this to the decline in the malware. What's interesting about there is that that company was actually working on a script for a movie called The Botnet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, I don't know if that movie will ever come out or not now, <laughs> but <laughs> they were supposed to have some like pretty, you know, uh, um, uh, well-known actors in there. It's gonna mm -hmm. be this whole big thing. So they were part of producing this movie and uh, possibly maybe involved uh, in, in some of that type of activity. Uh, what's interesting for us is that since November of last year, we've actually observed an increase in another type of malware uh, called Vortrack, and that uh, comes usually like in uh, phishing campaigns. And I think mm -hmm. it might also be related to Drydex or you know, that Drydex and Wartrack have been mm -hmm. kind of competing since November of last year. So it is kind of interesting, you know, that maybe the dire malware went away, but certainly not the appetite for having malware that steals users' credentials and mm -hmm. running on machines. That hasn't gone away. And no, not at all. In fact, it's been a growing... Yes, exactly. Activity. And it's been an increase in, in that type of distribution. Yeah, and, and it, I think it's diversified quite a bit as well. Again, uh, the evolution versus revolution kind of thing. I think it's very been very much a, a an evolution. You know, it used to just go after the early password stealers were going after uh, banking credentials. And they would even smart target specific banks. And then it started to diversify to other things. And basically any type of online commerce activity is subject to that sort of thing now. And you don't even have to see the evidence of the attacks. All you have to do is it, you know, the, the user experience that you have with online purchasing organizations is a clear indication. They're not doing, you know, putting all these checks and balances and offering two-factor authentication for fun. They're doing it because they're trying to deal with a, you know, a set of issues and reduce the shrinkage and that type of thing. So, and I think there have been a number of cases, well, certainly the social engineering, or the, the social networking attack activities like the Syrian Electronic Army, a lot of those are based on password credential stealing activities as well, although perhaps not malware based. Actually, I think some of them were, uh, but I don't think uh, attributable to Dyer or Voltrack necessarily, but in any case, good story. So let's, uh, John, maybe you can walk us through our quiz. Your quiz, the quiz, the, qu the quiz for the period. Every time I show up, I got to give you a quiz, right? <laughs> okay, I got, I got to see. So, some, some of these are going to challenge some of the the younger ones, and some of them will challenge the older ones. Maybe yeah. that's. So we'll, we'll look at history yet again. <laughs> yeah, so which, so the first question is which of these, uh, and I list four historical browsers are still supported today. So A is World Wide Web, which came out in 1990. B is Links, which came out in 1992. C is NCSA Mosaic, which came out in 1993, and D is UDWWW, which came out in 1995. Well, I'm, I'm going to just put in my first little hint here. It may be a deceptive hint. Oh, so not a hint? Well, almost every single website I ever go to starts with www something. That's right. Almost every site. There's got to be something to that. Well, I know... I'm pretty sure I know where I, you know, I think it's links. I, I, I links. I'm also going with links because I'm pretty sure I can still get it. I think it's links too. <laughs> I think you were trying to trick us. <laughs> I was trying to trick you. <laughs> so, John, what's the answer? 
The answer is links, and that's that's good. A lot yeah. of these guys are still kind of around in some format. Like yeah. you said, World Wide Web is you know pretty ubiquitous, but Mosaic you know became Netscape in kind of a twisted way, mm -hmm. which be now is Fire, Firefox. So you know you, you see it. I, I always laugh at Mosaic whenever I see it. It was the first browser I ever used. Right. I very right. well remember it, and I remember where you downloaded it from was a server called Bastille at the University of Illinois Champaign in Urbana-Champaign. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I remember, I still remember that FTP, you know, getting that FTP command at the command line to get that browser. Mm -hmm. So for uh, for links, that's the uh, that's the one that the one of choice for command line mm -hmm. browsing, right? So that's the uh, I think anybody that recognizes links is probably uh, you know like a command line. Well, I remember when I first used it was I, a friend of mine said you got to try setting up Gentoo, which anybody who's a Linux user has tried setting up Gentoo at least back in the day. It was like, okay, you start and it takes you 24 hours to just set up Gentoo and then you go, what do I do with this thing? But you'd had to basically set up your entire, you, you would, the instructions they gave you would say, go to fire up links and go to the website and browse through the wiki and get your instructions here. And, and that was the only way to do it because you hadn't got a full system yet. Mm -hmm. All right, next one, John. Good. All right, so so here here's actually a question that might show up on a CISSP question, you know, <laughs> exam. So for those of you who may who haven't taken it yet, this is this is a question that may be there. So in the Kerberos protocol, TGT refers to a thrice given token, b tension gathering tome, c ticket granting ticket, or d take generated tag. <laughs> Stan doesn't ask I feel This one should be easy, guys. Come on now. <laughs> uh, is it the ticket granting ticket? I'm going with that, too. What do you say, John? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. you got to remember in Kerbos you have tickets, but you can't get a ticket until you get a ticket granting you that ticket. Yeah, <laughs> so there you go. So this All one, right. So now, now here, here's a controversial one because this has got lots of answers, I, and I, I have to apologize for this question in advance. Okay. Because <laughs> this one, this one, this one could be a little tricky. So which of these is the best semiconductor? And let me preface this and add an addendum. At, at high, um, at, at uh, let's see, it would be high voltage. High voltage. Okay. So A gallium nitride, B germanium, C silicon carbide. D diamond or E silicon. So my first instinct is to go with diamond D, but you've thrown in that at high uh, voltage, and that's where the my my uh, my domain of knowledge ends. I don't know how it changes as voltage changes. So I'm going to stick with D. And All right. I was going to go with silicon. You're going to go with silicon. Silicon. Very important difference. Ah, okay. All right. Mine is A gallium nitride. Yeah, well, this is, like I said, this one's really screwy because, you know, when you talk about semiconductors, you talk about uh, what they call band gap, which is how, how, how well it, you know, at high voltage, you know, what's, how well it serves. So diamond is actually really well, is the answer for high voltage. But, you know, and it's thin. You can make thin, uh, high-voltage semiconductor for diamond. But when you start, this is where the twist gets in, is when you talk cost, you talk about size, you talk about imperfections, you know, it could be any of these depending upon the right uh, circumstance. Mm -hmm. uh, silicon is, is usually what we see, of course, in computers just because it's cheap. It's actually, I think in particular, it's cheap to manufacture. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the real trick. Yeah. 
Yep. And, and, and it doesn't have a lot of imperfections because some of these will actually get like little needles. Like when you make, you make them, they, they don't come out perfect. Mm -hmm. So it's really a tricky uh, manufacturing process. But uh, so it, it depends on the circumstance. Diamond for the high voltage because it has a uh, electron uh, volt. Uh, the gap itself is like 5.5, which is really high. Mm -hmm. So high temperature, high voltage. But when you start talking to lower voltages and, and, and the cost, it can be really any of these. Well, I have to admit, you know, I, I, I actually studied semiconductor design in college, and, uh, but it's been 30 years. And quite frankly, I hadn't even really thought of diamond as a semiconductor. Uh, but gallium nitride is used in solar cells. Okay. It's also used in, um, uh, what is it, gallium arsenide? which is uh, basically they use it in very high frequency microwave, a lot of space applications, things like that. Always more familiar the trade -off, with solar panels. <laughs> yeah, the, the, <laughs> the trade-off with that is that it's very expensive to manufacture, whereas silicon has a really neat proposition or a property that you can oxidize it easily, which turns it into an insulator, and then you can etch that oxide, which becomes actually an etching or a pattern for depositing metals and things like that, so it becomes much easier to uh, do the manufacturing associated And isn't, isn't the gallium nitride, like you mentioned, it's really dangerous too. If you don't do it right, you can, you know, like wipe out half the block, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, minor details. Well, you know, John, I would say the next time you <laughs> That's have... That's why they call it Silicon Valley, so it stays in the... <laughs> uh, I was going to say, next time you have engineering constraints, you should probably mention them in the question. I know, it was, it was a bad, I just said best. <laughs> All right, so let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here, and uh, we're going to do this rather quickly. I guess, uh, you know, the first item on the list here is the top 10 most probed ports, uh, port 23 at the top. It's been that way for quite some time. I guess I will point out, though, and I often don't point this out, but we have, in this case, a, a category of other, which actually is the dominant portion of the pie here. But within that other, there are actually, in this case, 2,253 other ports that are contributing to that. So it just gives you a little bit of idea how deep that uh, distribution goes in terms of the number of ports that are being scanned on a given day. 2,200 is a little bit on the high side. I think we typically see more like uh, maybe 700 or so. So this is a little bit different than uh, I think is a fairly typical day. Nevertheless, port 23 at the top of the list. We'll take a look at that a little more closely, but it's stable at the top, has been for some time. 1,900 EDP, that's jumped up 21 slots. But you'll see that the, uh, the overall pattern hasn't changed significantly. 53,413 UDP, that's the, uh, the Netis router backdoor. Hasn't changed much. We'll take a look at that. And port 22 TCP SSH uh, hasn't moved significantly either. It actually moved down a slot to make room for that port 1900 UDP. And then 53 UDP, that's DNS. 445 TCP, still a lot of uh, scanning for Microsoft stuff. 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database, followed by 80 TCP. We're going to be looking at 80 TCP in the context of sources probing. And then uh, 3389, that's uh, RDP, and I think we have a graph for that one later on as well. So taking a look at the scan probes on port 23 TCP, well, it's actually stable or so over the last week or so here. Uh, we've seen the surges in activity, but it is also worthy of note that it's still in the hundreds of millions of probes per hour that we're... Uh, you know, sensing here. So although it's going down, it certainly has not uh, diminished significantly as an overall threat. That is hundreds of millions of probes per hour, just from our perspective, means that the entire internet is being scanned within, or at least certainly within a, a handful of hours. 
uh, scan probes on port 1900 UDP, SS, that's SSDP, Simple Service Discovery Protocol, which is really a LAN protocol. A lot of this has been blocked, but there's still some, uh, uh, you know, basically we still have some visibility into the activity that's taking place. We're lo looking at the last 180 days, and, you know, what we're seeing more recently is not significantly different than what we've seen over the last 180 days or so. You know, it's been up or down. It is, I think, interesting to note, like, where you see these gaps in activity, which basically suggests that this is not like a crowdsourcing activity in a sense. There are not a lot of contributors that there are basically, you know, when a particular actor stops, a lot of it really dries up and there's just a, a lower noise floor. So it's not as if there are a lot of actors that are contributing to this activity. And generally speaking, they're scanning around looking for these servers. They're exposed to the internet and can use those for uh, reflective denial service attacks. And in some cases, the, these uh, spikes can actually be associated with the request side of those attacks. And uh, it's very sometimes difficult to detect or distinguish between those in the flow data. Next item here, scan probes on port 53413 UDP. As I mentioned, this is a Netis router backdoor, which uh, is a case where you can just throw a packet that has some scripting information in there. And if the uh, router accepts it through that backdoor, it will actually execute those scripts. And then usually it basically commands it to download some additional scripts and turn it into a bot and do some other things. So we're looking at the last 60 days of activity here. Not a significant change other than I think the general trend is that this is becoming more, more significant, that is a gradual increase in activity, and more stable. That is, we used to see surges in activity and then a drop, but it looks like what they've done is what I like to refer to as gone into maintenance mode. They've basically built up a botnet, and they're just going around and scanning from time to time to uh, basically keep that botnet at, uh, at the strength that they're desiring here. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, at the top of the list here. Well, actually, just taking a quick look on port 23, top of the list, and uh, I just wanted to put this in the context here. Over the course of a day, uh, we detected on the order of, I think it's closer to 147,000 unique source addresses that we're scanning on port 23 TCP through the course of the day. Now, in a given hour, we only see a segment of those. You know, they may not uh, hit our address space or something along those lines, but just to, they're at the very least, uh, 250,000 sources uh, that uh, were, you know, effectively compromised in doing the scanning activity on the internet yesterday. Moving to port 53413, well, I think we're going to take a look at that one. And then uh, the other one I think we'll take a look at here is uh, port 80 TCP. Looking at the uh, scan sources in port 23, relatively stable, basically consistent with the last graph we had looked at, uh, looking at the last 90 days of activity here. And then 53413, as we had observed earlier, relatively stable activity. Again, it is sort of interesting to note sort of drops in activity, which basically indicates that it's a single actor that's doing this, and uh, it's not a coincidence that a whole bunch of those are going away. So there may be, you know, there may be a handful of actors that are scanning or uh, probing on this port, but it's not as if there are dozens or hundreds or thousands. And then looking at scan sources on port 80 TCP over the last 60 days, we have seen a couple of spikes on this over, the, uh, over that time period, and most recently in the last day or so here. I don't really have a good explanation for this other than to point out that it looked like the, uh, the sources were kind of weighted in Mexico and Russia and the United States, not necessarily in that order. So uh, kind of an interesting uh, characteristic and perhaps worth uh, taking a little closer look at to see 
the reason for that. There's also uh, uh, some research activities taking place that contributes to this, but just to put this into perspective, we're looking at an increase on the order of maybe, uh, looks like about 2,000 source addresses that were participating here. So there's clearly a botnet behind that activity. And last here is uh, scan sources on port 3389. That's uh, remote desktop protocol. Over the last couple of weeks, we reported a couple of surges in terms of the number of sources that were doing that scanning. This first one that was back in the, uh, I guess the middle of January, clearly had the characteristics of a botnet with these cases where uh, you know, a, a command was put out, a bunch of bots started doing the scanning, and then it had that uh, sort of that telltale sort of uh, degradation in activity. This last one was a little bit different, perhaps the same botnet doing it, but uh, perhaps it was told to discontinue that activity. So it, it basically abrupted, or perhaps somebody put a block in place on the command and control. It's, uh, it's very difficult to say what, what uh, caused that. But nevertheless, it's back to uh, what we, I would guess, call stable, only a mere 2,000 sources doing that scanning activity on a given hour. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, on YouTube, and on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Stan Erlov. Thank you. Thank you, Matt Kaiser. Anytime. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, Keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.